Well, thank you, Wade, and good morning to you guys. It's great to be with you today. Like Wade said, we've had an opportunity to get to know one another. I've had a chance to get to know Brian and David and Pablo and some of your other leaders in the last few months. And uh, at Midlands Church, we're just thankful to know about you guys. We're, we're grateful for the work you're doing here in West Columbia, Casey. Consider you partners in the gospel, and so it's a real pleasure to get to hang out with you this morning. I'm going to have us look at a couple of stories in Luke chapter 18 and 19. We're not going to look at the whole chapters, so don't worry. Uh, I just didn't send them the exact stories, but it's Luke 18. If you've got a Bible, you can go there, and I'm going to start by reading the first story. It's the story of the rich ruler, beginning in verse 18, and I'd like to, to read that for us, and then we'll get started. It says, a ruler asked him, that's a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Would you pray with me as we ask God's blessing on our time together? Lord, thank you that we can gather and open up your word this morning. I pray that you would bless the teaching of your word. I pray that your spirit would move in my heart and in our hearts together. Lord, may the words of my mouth be an encouragement and an exhortation to the people here at City Church. And may the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight. God, be honored and glorified in our time together. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. It was July 9th, 1974. Prisoner 23226 checked into the Maxwell Correctional Facility in Montgomery, Alabama. This guy was one of 230,000 prisoners in America at the time, but he was probably the most well-known inmate. He had just been convicted for his role in the most high-profile crime in the history of our country. He had been called an evil genius and called the most hated man in Washington. Now he was going to prison for what he had done, and for the most part, America was celebrating. That was in 1974. In 2012, prisoner 23226 died and went to be with Jesus, and the church mourned. By the time of his death, he was known as one of the most influential Christians in our country. You may know who I'm talking about. Uh, The guy's name is Charles Colson. He was a special counsel to President Richard Nixon. Of course, he was at the center of the Watergate scandal. Uh, In Colson's day, he was known as uh, Nixon's hatchet man. (laughs) He He was called the evil face of an evil administration. Uh, when, when Nixon had difficult meetings to handle and, and complicated situations, it was said that Colson was brought in to do the dirty work. He may have indeed been one of the most hated men in Washington, and yet the Lord converted him and transformed his legacy. 
And when I think about stories like that, it, it confronts me, and I think it confronts us all with a profound question. Do we really believe that God can save a person like that? I mean, how hard would that have been to believe in the 70s? Now, I want you to imagine for a second, I'm a guest here, so I'm going to resist the temptation to name any names, but just think for a second about who might get to bear the title of the most hated man or woman in Washington today, right? And now imagine tomorrow morning, you open up the headlines, Monday morning's newspaper, and we read that this person has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They want to change their life and they want to begin to live for him. How hard would that be for us to believe tomorrow morning? It sounds impossible, right? But Jesus said in that story we just read, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So I want us to look at two stories this morning, uh, two men who encountered Jesus. And they're actually pretty similar guys when they meet Jesus. They have a lot in common. They're both pretty wealthy. They're both pretty powerful. They would have both been pretty well known in their day. But their response to Jesus changes everything about them. One of them is going to go away sad. The other is going to go away filled with joy, as we'll see when we look at the story of Zacchaeus in chapter 19. One of them is going to illustrate for us what is impossible with man. The other is going to show us what is possible with God. So let's look at that story we just read in Luke 18, the rich ruler. It's kind of a fascinating little interaction between Jesus and the ruler. We don't know a ton about the guy. Uh, except we know that he is wealthy. Uh, He seems to have some political power. We can assume there's some prestige to him. And he comes to Jesus and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we can assume that that's a sincere question, I think. But obviously his assumptions were greatly flawed. He He was thinking in terms of the next mountain to climb. This was a successful guy, This was a guy respected by his peers. He was probably well-known in his day. He had probably accomplished a great deal. When you walk around and people refer to you you as the rich ruler, you're probably a pretty accomplished fella. And so he's looking for his next mountain to climb. He's thinking, what do I need to do to get to eternal life? And so Jesus, in verse 19 and 20 there, he draws his attention to the law, I think to help him see the, the false foundation he's trying to build on. He's thinking, what must I do? And Jesus doesn't even dispute his claim for keeping the law. He just exposes to him why that's not enough. You can't find enough rules to obey to make yourself right with God. You see, the man is instinctively looking to himself for salvation. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is going to show him why that thinking fails. There was a a guy about 400 years ago named Martin Luther. You may be familiar with his name from church history. He, he talked about how all of us are born as theologians of glory. What that means is just when we think of God, we want to put him in terms of personal glory. We tend to think that he is, is kind of like made in our image and that he would be impressed by the same things that impress us. So we, we prefer strength and glory to weakness. And when we think about salvation, we think about it as a path to our own personal glory. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to attain God's favor? That seems to be what's behind the ruler's question. And Jesus is kind enough to point the man to a better way. In Mark's version of this gospel, he says, Jesus looked upon him and he loved him. And so he said, the the part that we get there in verse 22, 
So what does Jesus say to him in response? This is kind of fascinating. He says, there's one thing you lack. Now, I think we have to be really careful not to misinterpret this because as Luther said, all of us are theologians of glory by default. That's our default setting. So we want to know, well, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Where's the list? What are the things I need to check off? And Jesus says, okay, well, one thing you need to do. So we're tempted like the rich ruler to read this like a how-to manual. Okay, I need to, uh, I need to keep the law. I need to sell my possessions. I need to give to the poor. That's what I must do to be good enough for God. That's how the ruler receives it. And that's why he goes away sad. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. I don't think that's his point. You think about what he says. He says, you lack one thing. And then he tells him four things to do. I think Jesus could count. I think he was making a point here. He says, you lack one thing. He says, so here's what you need to do. You need to sell all that you have. You need to distribute it to the poor. Then you need to come. And then you need to follow me. You lack one thing, and I'm going to tell you four things to do. Each of those actions are tied to this central transformation of the man's identity. It's not like he's given him a, a checklist, you know, step one, step two, step three, step four, and then you'll be good enough for God. He's trying to reveal something deeper to him. Th- think about it like this. Imagine there was a young guy here at City Church who was kind of infatuated with a young lady here at City Church. And he looked at the young lady and he said, what must I do to spend my life with you? She said, we only need to do one thing. You need to buy me a ring. We need to find a pastor. I need to walk the aisle and we need to exchange vows, right? And what's she saying? In order to spend your life with me, we need to get married, right? And all those things I listed are just a part of or evidence of that larger commitment you need to have to spend your life with me. We need to come into a covenant relationship together. That's the path to a life with me. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to this man. There are multiple actions there, but it's really about one fundamental change. He says, you only lack one thing to have eternal life. I think what Jesus is trying to show him is the thing he lacks is Jesus himself. He's saying, in order to come to me, you have to let go of all that you are clinging to. You have to let go of your possessions, You have to let go of your pretense, your sense of self-righteousness, your hope of making yourself good enough for God. You've got to let go of all those things and you've got to grab hold of me. That's what Jesus tells the man to do. Stop pursuing eternal life like you're chasing worldly glory and embrace the mercy that God offers. Now, this is bad news for a rich man. That's what we see in the text because he has a lot to let go of. Right? He goes away sad. He doesn't like the idea of releasing all these things and t- coming to God humbly. But that's the reality. You can't grab hold of Jesus if you're clinging to the things of this world. That's what Jesus is trying to show this man. And he, he goes on to talk about how difficult it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. It's, it's like trying to pass a camel through the eye of a needle. It's kind of a metaphor for something that would be basically logically impossible. And I think that's still true today. I I was talking to a friend this week who was referencing a friend of his who's a pastor on the Isle of Palms. It's one of my favorite places in South Carolina. And you know, when you hear that, you you start to think like, it'd be nice if the Lord would call me to a place like that. (laughs) I'd be fine being a pastor on the Isle of Palms in South Carolina. Uh, Instead of here in Columbia, where my phone warns me every morning that there's a heat advisory. (laughs) 
<laughs> like, I think you could just leave that in there as a placeholder until like September. Uh, but here's the reality. The Isle of Palms is a tough place to be a pastor. That's what my friend and I were talking about. I mean, how do you convince people that feel like they have everything in this life that they are actually lacking the one thing that's going to give them eternal joy? It's hard for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult, but it's not impossible. It's difficult, but it's not impossible. So Jesus' response here in the story in chapter 18 is so surprising that his disciples are kind of dumbfounded. They're like, well, then who can be saved? If this guy, who seemed to have it all together, who seemed capable of proving himself and attaining the favor of God, if he can't come to you, who can be saved? And Jesus points them and points us to the all-sufficient mercy of God. With man, this is impossible. But with God, anything is possible. You see, God makes it possible not by meeting us halfway on our own quest for personal glory, but by coming to us when we've come to the end of ourselves. When we reach a point where we realize, I have nothing to offer God. I'm not going to come to him based on who I am. He doesn't care who I am. He's not impressed with my credentials. He's not impressed with my accomplishments. He's not waiting on me. He doesn't need me. But I need him desperately. And I've got no pretense. I've got no cards to play. I've got nothing left to appeal to. I'm just going to come to him empty-handed and throw myself on his mercy. And Jesus says, when you come to God like that, he receives you with open arms. The reality is, it's difficult for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. But we could think about all sorts of different examples that, that might be particularly hard in our mind. I mean, we could think about uh, that successful politician you thought of earlier. Maybe they've built their entire lives on a particular campaign or particular policy. What if they were to come to Jesus and start reorienting their words and actions around the kingdom of God? What would it do to them? What would it do to their career? What would it do to their lives? It sounds really difficult for a person like that to enter the kingdom of God. But is it impossible? No. What about that person you know who's living an immoral lifestyle, whose choices are daily in opposition to the word of God? You think they've built their entire lives around living a particular way and going down particular paths. If they were to come to Jesus, they'd have to change everything. And would it be difficult for them to enter the kingdom of God? Absolutely. But is it impossible? No. What about that Muslim in the Middle East whose entire family and entire village bows to another God? Then a Christian missionary shows up and starts preaching to them about Jesus. And he realizes, if I turn and I become a disciple of this, this man and this faith and this hope, I'm turning my back on everyone I know. And they're going to turn their back on me. They're going to cast me out. I'm going to lose my job, my family. It may cast me out altogether. But I have to ask myself, is it worth it? Is it likely for a person like that to come to Christ? Maybe not. But is it impossible? What about the good old boy in Columbia, South Carolina? Somebody who's grown up his whole life in a, in a culture that is so steeped in the language of Christianity that sometimes it's kind of hard to separate fact from reality. And we kind of grow up and we just assume if we 
just kind of do the right thing and vote the right way. We're all Christians, right? Everybody's got a church they're a member of. Everybody got baptized when they're 11. You know, it's kind of hard to figure out where the lines actually are. Does it seem difficult for a person like that to come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus Christ is? I think so. In some ways, it's as difficult as some of those other people we mentioned. But is it impossible? Absolutely not. You see, it's so easy to assume that there are some that are beyond the hope of God's grace. And we read a story like the rich ruler, and we think, that's what would happen if I shared my faith with these people I'm thinking about. I would lay forth the gospel, I would make myself vulnerable, I would point them to God, and they'd tell me that's crazy. They'd go away sad, and I'd go away too. But what's impossible with man Jesus says is possible with God. And as if Luke wants to give us an illustration of that, in the very next chapter, he tells a different story about a different rich and powerful man who comes to a very different end. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn the page probably, or maybe on the same page to Luke chapter 19. And I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights because I'm assuming most of you are probably familiar with the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, Some of The kids in here could remind us that he was a wee little man, right? You may know the song. Uh, That's kind of an incidental story to his his story, incidental detail to his story. Uh, But he was small in stature. That's the nice way they put it in my Bible. And uh, that caused him to have to climb a tree when Jesus came to town. Uh, We don't know a ton about him. We know he was wealthy. Uh, We know he was the chief tax collector in his area. Uh, To translate that to modern terms, that means he worked for the man. That means nobody really liked him. Uh, He was kind of recognized as a guy who was probably a little sleazy, had probably been cutting a little off the top for himself. And he he probably knew it. He had had made his money and and made his reputation as a guy whom other people didn't like but had to put up with. And so here he is. He's in Jericho. Jesus is coming to town. He's also short. And so he has to climb up in a tree to see Jesus. And we don't really know where his heart is at in this moment. I don't know, I don't know where Zacchaeus is at spiritually when Jesus is entering town. I think what we do know is he's clearly intrigued. It took a little effort to run ahead and climb a tree in order to be able to see him. I don't know that that's evidence of salvation necessarily. I think that's probably like, you know, people that will be interested in a famous person coming to our town tomorrow, <laughs> right? Uh, that you may, may or may not have heard of. You, know, you kind of just want to come and see. You just want to sort of be around the crowd and see what's going on. I think that's probably what's going on with Zacchaeus here. But look what happens in verse 5 when Jesus comes into the place. Jesus looks up and he speaks to him. And this is in Luke 19 verse 5. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now we just saw what happens when Jesus beckons a wealthy person to come to him. It's not likely for him to come down, right? It's really difficult for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus just said that, right? We can think about all the reasons why Zacchaeus up in that tree with the whole town watching, these people whom he has some authority over, whom he's kind of built his career on taking advantage of, why Zacchaeus would go, I'm not coming down from here. What are these people going to think of me if I come down from this tree? What might happen to my career? What might happen to the little side money I'm getting off of their taxes? 
I'm not going to humiliate myself and come down from this tree just because this man looked up at me and told me. We can think of all the reasons why Zacchaeus would have acted like he didn't hear what Jesus said. And yet in verse 6, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. What in the world happens in that moment? Well, I think it illustrates an important reality to us that we have to cling to if we're going to continue to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ into the lives of people we know and love. The call of God is capable of creating what it demands. We see this all throughout scripture. People don't come to Jesus because they are good enough for Jesus. They come to Jesus because Jesus comes after them. And the call of God is capable of putting faith in their hearts that they might turn and receive him and run after him joyfully. That's why we don't give up on people. It's not that we are hoping in their ability to turn themselves around. What we're hoping in is the power of the call of God. That's what happened to Colson, by the way, Chuck Colson. We talked about at the beginning, when he was at his lowest, he was in the deepest valley of his life, he had a, a friend who actually had just became a Christian. He was over at his house, and the guy was trying to encourage him, and he started reading to him from uh, Mere Christianity, a book by C.S. Lewis you may have heard of. When that guy was reading that, those quotes to him, he wasn't hoping in Chuck Colson's ability to change himself. He was an evil genius, right? He was the mastermind villain of his day. But his buddy is just thinking, God changed me. He can turn my heart over. Maybe he can change Chuck. And so he starts reading to him, and God used that little book in part to open his eyes. And, and this is how Chuck Colson describes what happened. He said, that night I left this gentleman's home. Something happened that had never happened to me before. So I was getting into my car and I sat there and I couldn't drive because I was crying too hard. This is that tough guy. He was the most hated man in Washington. So I spent an hour on the side of the road right next to my friend's home, crying, thinking about my wife, wanting to know God, wanting to be clean. I was feeling totally lost and lonely and helpless really conflicted about my own sinful behavior. For the first time in my life, I realized I had made a mess of things. He, he came to the end of himself. Luther said, most of us, he said, all of us are born as theologians of glory. What happens to us when Jesus comes into our lives is we become theologians of the cross. That just means we begin to see God through the lens of the crucifixion of his son. When that happens to you, you begin to look at God not as this angry, austere deity that you could never be good enough for, but you see him through the lens of a father who gave the life of his son so that you could be welcomed into his presence. You see him through the lens of Jesus who revealed his strength by becoming weak and who demonstrated his glory by, of all things, dying on a cross at the hands of lawless men. In that death, he purchased life for you and me. He made a way for us to receive the mercy of God. And when we begin to recognize that as good news, we run after it. We forget about everything else because nothing else matters. We don't know what that process was like for Zacchaeus, but what we do see is the result. As you continue on in the story, he has Jesus over, 
they have dinner. And then at some point he stands up and gives a speech. This is probably after dinner that night. I'm not exactly sure when it happened. It doesn't say. But of his own initiative, Zacchaeus goes above the standard in the day for generosity and goes well beyond what the law would require in terms of repaying those from whom he has stolen things. And even the way he says it, he says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, the way he puts those words, he's saying, since I have defrauded people of lots of things, I'm going to restore it fourfold. You know what we don't see there? We don't see Zacchaeus planning. We don't see him calculating. There's no pause to project the outcome and think about what might happen to him because he has found something so amazing and so glorious that whatever it may cost him along the way, the joy that he has discovered will far outweigh whatever difficulties he may face. And he's actually doing precisely what the rich ruler was unwilling to do, right? Jesus said, one thing you lack, come follow me, sell all your things, distribute to the poor. And the guy says, I can't let go. Those things are they're too central to who I am. Who would I be without those things? He looks upon those things. He's holding them tightly. And he goes away sad. And in the very next chapter, a man who many in his day would have probably guessed was far less likely to come to Jesus. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house. And Zacchaeus says, I'm giving it all up. I don't care what it costs me. I'm running after this man who I now recognize is my God, my Lord, and my Savior. And again, it shows us that what is impossible with man is possible with God. That's what happened to Colson. Uh, as his legal issues were playing out, he converted to Christianity, and he actually became convinced that while he didn't think he did anything illegal, that part's a little debatable, uh, but he was pretty sure, he, he, in his mind, he didn't think he had done anything illegal. What he was confident in was that he was a very immoral man. And so against his lawyer's advice, he pleaded guilty to something he actually said he didn't do. Not as a means of attaining Christ, but as a joyful response to the grace he had received. It was his own Zacchaeus kind of moment. He realizes, I have a debt to pay. I'm going to pay back those whom I have wronged. I'm going to let go of my reputation. I'm going to let go of my freedom. And I'm going to feel fine about it now because I'm clinging to Jesus. And a lot of you guys know, Colson went to prison. Uh, he wasn't there very long before he was paroled, but he, uh, when he got out, he started something called Prison Fellowship, uh, which still ministers to inmates around the world today. It's active in 120 countries. So by the time of Colson's death in 2012, a lot of us didn't even think of him in those Nixon terms as the, the hatchet man and the evil face of an evil administration we think of him as this guy who, who has been at the center of changing the lives of hundreds of maybe thousands of people over the course of his life and ministry. Like Zacchaeus, Colson turned from pursuing personal glory to embracing the cross. So the question I want you guys to think about today and the question I've been thinking about all week just in, in preparing for this and looking at these stories is, do you believe that this kind of turnaround is possible for your friends and family? Do you believe it's possible for you? 
I mean, this story, looking at Zacchaeus here, it reminds us that the call of God can transform the darkest heart. It can penetrate the thickest walls and reach into the depths of human despair. We simply never know what the end of someone's story is going to look like. So the story of the rich ruler, it reminds us that casting our hope on ourselves will never lead to life. Coming to Jesus requires us to give up on ourselves and recognize that salvation is impossible with us. But the story of Zacchaeus and our modern parallel of Chuck Colson, it shows us that when we turn from ourselves and we embrace the Lord, anything is possible. So I'd like to pray for us and pray that God would continue to stir our hearts toward those that don't know him. Uh, If any of you here this morning and maybe you consider yourself on the outside looking in on a crowd like this and you think about your own relationship with God, you may think, man, I've I've spent my whole life thinking I just got to get myself right in order for God to receive me. Friend, I would invite you this morning to let go of those things. Let go of that pretense. Let go of that false hope of making yourself good enough for God. And even now in these moments, you can cry out to him and he will come to you. He will embrace you with open arms. So I want to pray for us and I think David's going to play for us. So let's, let's pray.